Radiolab is supported by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hi, I'm Robert Krill, which Radiolab is supported by Audible. As we explore this story of obsession, creativity, and symmetry, check out This Is Your Brain on Music, both a cutting-edge study and a tribute to the beauty of music. Go to audible.com slash radiolab or text radiolab to 500-500 for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook. Hi, I'm Robert Krulwich. Radio Lab is supported by Casper. As we continue this episode on creativity and symmetry, check out the Casper or the Wave mattress with a support system that mirrors your body shape. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash radiolab and using code radiolab at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. This is Jad. Before we start, I would like to let you know about a new podcast that is out there in the world that is aimed at, drum roll please, kids. I must say I'm particularly excited about this because my kids just discovered podcasting. It's this thing that we can do together. This particular one, which is called This Podcast Has Fleas, tells the story of a dog and a cat who live in the same house and have competing podcasts. Hi, everybody. I'm Waffles. This is Dog Talk, a podcast by a dog. They both have podcasts. Everybody has podcasts these days. Why, why would pets be any different? Let me play you a tease, a small soupçon of what you can expect from this series. This is a moment when Waffles the dog walks into the mudroom. All right, we have arrived at the mudroom. And discovers that she is not... The only pet in the house with a podcast. <gasps> well, listeners, the cat is sitting in his litter box. He has a microphone and headphones and a big electronic thingy with a lot of buttons on it. He is doing a podcast. Well, <laughs> I don't care. I'm sure it won't be any good. Live! Cat lovers, this is live from the litter box, and I am Jones the Cat, coming at you with a show so hot, it just might explode. Thanks to all you cat lovers who downloaded my hit new single featured in last week's episode, let's hear a little bit of it now. Wow. Are totally perfect, are totally worthy of maximum respect. Respect. Who always lands on their feet, who invented the nap. Who sometimes has bonus toes. Jay Farrow, Saturday Night Live alum, plays the cat. Emily Lynn plays the dog. Alec Baldwin plays a goldfish. If you have kids, if you don't, check it out. It's called This Podcast Has Fleas from WNYC Studios. You get it wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, you're pretty good at that, Jaddy McDaddy. Thank you. And I gotta say, I just love your show. It's an inspiration. You sure you're not a cat? Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. Yeah. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab. So, okay, so this one. This one, I think you weren't around for the first time. I wasn't. It. I was gone for it. But, I, but I, then I listened afterwards. You hate listened. I hate listened. Exactly. I hate listened. And then, as is often the case, I sort of reluctantly became a like listener. Oh, that's oh. the nicest thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> no, so this one is a, uh, it's, uh, you know, I, me, the, I'm a music nerd, yeah, right? you are. This is a story about um, the weirdness of creativity and a piece of music that frankly I had to study in school, but which unites two people across space and time in a really bizarre way. It's a kind of rhyme. The first story begins in the 1980s in Vancouver, British Columbia, with a woman named Anne Adams, who by all accounts was a brilliant cell biologist. Oh yes, Anne was highly articulate. That's her husband, Robert Adams. You know, extremely capable with language. She did cancer research. She actually developed a cell line that I believe still exists. Wow. So she was very sharp. He says that as a scientist, she was a natural. But then, rather suddenly, at the age of 46, uh, Anne kind of did a 180. Something happened in 86, which changed the course of her life. It all started when their third son, Alex, gets into a really bad car accident. And we were told that he would probably never, ever walk again. And decides she's going to take some time off to help him recover, and he does. He does learn to walk again. But while at home, she just decides to quit. To quit science and become a painter. Yeah. Anne made up her mind then and there that she was going to take up art full time. Had she ever painted before? Well... She did a fair amount of it when she was in high school. Which was a very long time ago, so the whole thing struck him as kind of out of the blue, but he rolled with it, and uh, within a short period of time, she had converted a room in their house into a studio, and she was painting... Houses and buildings, little Mm -hmm. churches. Simple at first, but then after that... Brightly colored versions of what you see when you look down the barrel of a microscope. You know, cells, bacteria. After that... Strawberries. A series of paintings involving these blazing red strawberries. For instance, a water faucet, and out of it would be coming a stream of strawberries. There was things called Strawberry Universe, where the strawberries had rings around them like Saturn and so on. I think there was something like 35 or 36 strawberry paintings. But then she would switch to something else. Even after their son had fully recovered. Even threw away his crutches and went back to school. And kept on painting. And she would work all day long. Ten hours a day, making these paintings that got bigger and bigger and more abstract. And there were times, he says, when he was like, Wow. (laughs) Because for someone who hadn't painted since high school, she was suddenly so prolific. And uh, it's entirely possible that something was happening to her even then. Way below the surface. I mean, on the surface, she was just painting, and it was working. People were buying the paintings, she was having solo shows, she was becoming a successful artist. But then, in 1994... She decided, I don't know what gave her this idea, I never knew what gave her any of her ideas, but um, she decided she was going to do... A painting of, well, this. Bolero. Bolero. Yes, yeah. 
Polero. Robert says he's not quite sure how it happened, but at some point that year, Anne heard this famous piece by Maurice Ravel, became obsessed, couldn't stop listening to it, then playing it on the piano, then deconstructing it, mapping every pitch and the melody and the bass to a color. Here's, uh, um, here's one page, which isn't very long. This is from her notes. She's got A, silver, A flat, copper, B, leaf green, B flat, metallic green. Eventually, the painting. It's quite a large work, two panels side by side, very electric colors. A blizzard of symbols and triangles, little tooth-type things with marks on them that all mean something, and rectangles and marching. Back and forth across the first panel. There was a triangle in the bottom of each one of the rectangles, and the height of the rectangle represented the loudness. It's an incredibly obsessive translation of the music into visual language. And just like the melody in Bolero, the symbols repeat and repeat and repeat, obsessively getting bigger and bigger and bigger until at the very end of the second panel, things unravel. By the way, her title for the painting was Unraveling Bolero. And that unraveling? Turns out it happened before. When we come back, we're going to um, we're going to explain what we mean by a rhyme. We won't have to explain it. It'll just rhyme. Hello, this is Emily Villani from Austin, Texas. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Hi, I'm Robert Krill, which Radiolab is supported by Audible. As we explore this story of obsession, creativity, and a strange symmetry between a biologist and a composer, check out This Is Your Brain on Music, The Science of a Human Obsession, available on Audible. Both a cutting-edge study and a tribute to the beauty of music itself, This Is Your Brain on Music unravels a host of mysteries that affect everything from pop culture to our understanding of human nature. Go to audible.com slash radiolab or text radiolab to 500-500 for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook. Hi, I'm Robert Krillwich. Radiolab is supported by Casper. As we continue listening to this unraveling Bolero episode on creativity and symmetry, check out The Wave Mattress with a premium support system that mirrors your body shape, or The Casper with a breathable design and supportive memory foam. Get your Casper mattress delivered to your door in a small, how do they do that, size box. You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. Right now, get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash radiolab and using code Radio Lab at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Jad, Robert, Radio Lab. Getting back to our story, uh, we heard Anne's story uh, about painting the strawberries and then painting the painting of that piece of music. Now we're going to tell you a different story. Different time, different place, different person. But uh, strangely rhymed. Yeah. Story number two. Well, okay. Should we jump in? Yeah, please. This is R.B. Orenstein. Professor of music at the Aaron Copeland School of Music at Queens College. He's written about Ravel, performed Ravel, talked to anyone who ever knew Ravel. Uh, he kind of is a, what shall I say, a kind of a living presence inside my head. So, okay, Maurice Ravel is a composer, obviously one of the greats. Born in 1875. Papa was an engineer. Mother was from an old Bosque family. 
As in she was Spanish? Yes. Which is why uh, some of his music, like Bolero, does sound a bit Spanish. In any case, Mom encourages him to study music. He goes off to Paris in the 1890s, meets Claude Debussy. And together they sort of invent this style of music, which we now call Impressionism, which was this kind of free-floating, almost dreamlike, sensuous, a lot of colors. Very flowery. Yes. But then, like Anne, Ravel makes a kind of shift. 1928. When he was 53, about the same age Anne was when she did the painting. Uh, Ravel is having an absolutely phenomenal year. Just toured the United States, performed for thousands. He's at the zenith of his creativity. And he's back in France at a beach house. Wearing a pink bathing suit. And story goes, right before he steps out onto the beach, this melody swoops into his head. He runs over to the piano. Takes his index finger and he goes, There it was. It just came to him fully formed? Well, he I don't know if he played the whole melody, but he at least started it off. But here's the shift. When he sat down to flesh the whole thing out, instead of developing the melody, making it super flowery like his other stuff, he decided, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take this melody and repeat it again and again and again, and then again some more, and then some more. The theme never changes one note. The only thing that does change is the orchestration, which grows around the melody. Very slowly. Bit by bit. It gets bigger, bigger. More accompaniment, more instruments play the melody. But the melody itself, for 340 bars, never varies. To the point, he says, where the performers... They're, they're ready to see a psychiatrist by the time they're done playing this piece. And Ravel, at the first performance in Paris, some woman screamed out, He's crazy! Which turned out to be, well, not exactly true, but in the neighborhood. Six years after he wrote Bolero, this is 1933, Ravel begins to forget words. He'd always been forgetful, so no one really noticed at first. But then one day at dinner... He grabs the knife by the wrong side. And he doesn't realize it. And he continues to try to eat. Holding the sharp side of the knife and trying to cut with the handle. Then he visits a friend, leaves. Now two hours go by, knock on the door, it's Ravel again. He didn't remember that he'd been there before. Just two hours earlier. Eventually, by 1935, he could not write anymore. Or speak. His language had evaporated. Arby says there are documents where you can see Ravel desperately trying to relearn the alphabet. A, 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 over and over again. Wow. B, B, with a kind of a shaking hand, very small. It's very, very painful to see. Whatever it was that was wrong was getting worse. Here's the weird symmetry. Just like Ravel, six years after finishing her bolero... By 2000, I would say... Anne also begins to forget words. She would try to say things and couldn't. She would try to find words and couldn't. So how are you today? Fine. (laughs) Eventually, Anne ends up at the University of California, San Francisco. And this was in 2002, and they gave her a bunch of tests. Can you tell me your, your full name, please? And Teresa Adams. There's a video of one of these tests, and in it you can see Anne sitting at a table in a 
black sweater, gray hair, glasses. Very composed. And can you tell me your address? Like someone who's used to knowing the answers to questions that people ask her. For, um... Twenty-three. Which town? Um... Which town? Mm-hmm. Vancouver. Great. <laughs> By the time Anne had come to see us, uh, her communication abilities were markedly diminished. That's Dr. Bruce Miller. He's a neurologist. He runs the Memory and Aging Center at UCSF. Example, we asked her uh, to describe... Uh, okay, and I'd like you to take a look at this picture. A very complex, rich picture with... Take your time. Children with a kite, with a sailboat on the ocean. And please tell me what you see. And if you can, please try to speak in sentences. Anne would be able to say single words with no grammar. She'd go, sailboat. Tree. Boy. Um. Water. People. Kite. Kite. Flag. And uh, that four or five words would come out over about a minute's time. She was very frustrated. Both Ann Adams and Maurice Ravel were unraveling in the exact same way, at the exact same speed, to the same soundtrack, you might say, but just roughly 60 years apart. We think he and Anne, down to the very molecular process, had the exact same disease. And he thinks Bolero, the music, and then the painting, in both their cases, was the first symptom of that disease. This takes a couple steps to explain, bear with me. But to start, the disease is called frontotemporal dementia, and it's, it begins when certain cells in your frontal cortex, which is sort of above your forehead, begin to wither away. In some cases, literally leaving holes in your frontal cortex. And we know this about Anne from tests and brain scans. We suspect it about Ravel because, according to Arby, just before he died... On December 28th, 1937... A French surgeon opened up his skull and saw... That one of the lobes of the two lobes of the brain had sunk. Because it was disintegrating. Now, in both of their cases, the part of their brain, the part of their cortex that got hit, was on the left. This is a part of the brain that does a lot of things, uh, has a lot to do with memory. But most importantly for our story, this is the part of your brain that largely governs language. And what you see is that people who suffer from frontotemporal dementia, they lose their words. They can no longer string words together. And here's the thing about losing something like language. It has all kinds of other effects in the brain because, according to Bruce, you know, our brain is a series of interconnected circuits. And when, in a normal brain, a dominant circuit-like language turns on, it is basically wired to turn a bunch of other circuits off. It basically goes, shh, to other parts of the brain. We have this constant dance where one circuit uh, or many circuits turn on and then they're obligatorily turning off other circuits. So language acts as a kind of break on other things the brain can be doing, like daydreaming, thinking in pictures. But when the language is no longer there to hold things back, often what happens is that those other parts, like say the visual parts, can rush forward. And suddenly the mind is just flooded with images and you hear 
reports of people having these intensely visual experiences they, they've just got to express. This is very common. We see a number of patients who become visually obsessed. He says he sees, you know, investment bankers who've never shown any interest in art. Never even walked into an art museum. All of a sudden, they decide in their 50s, well, I'm going to move into a loft and take up painting. That's right. How many of these cases have you seen? 50, 60. Uh, some of them have sculpted, some of them have painted. He says he's seen people take up gardening, graphic design, and what so many of the cases have in common is that the sort of visual creativity that bursts forth, it's not the free-flowing kind, it's very mechanical. The repetition, the obsession. They get stuck in a kind of loop, taking one visual idea and doing it again and again and again. Like an Ann Adams painting. Or... Bolero. This uh, drive to repeat happens very early in the course of this illness. So he says what can seem like a simple creative choice to repeat a melody may actually be driven by a condition that you won't even know you have for six years. We think that this had something to do with the very unusual, rhythmic, repetitive sorts of music that Ravel produced. I asked Bruce, so why the repetition? Where does, where does that come from? Um, and um, I think this is a release of a, of a He says we don't really know, but he offered up a theory which I find fascinating, which may get to the root of creative obsession of any kind. He says there might be several parts of the brain that are held back by the language circuit, and one of them is this very ancient part of the brain basal ganglia, the part of the brain we move with. You can call it our reptile brain. This is the part of us that uh, governs, you know, basic behaviors like eating, running. Motor programs that uh, we uh, do repetitively every day. That's all it does. It sends commands saying move, move, eat, eat, run, run. Birds and snakes get by with basically just this part of the brain. Keeps them alive. Now, normally he thinks the language part of us inhibits these habits, these repetitive motor programs. That but when the language part of the brain is not there to do the shushing, these motor commands filter up too. So imagine you're one of these people. Your mind is flooded with all of these images, maybe sounds. It's also flooded with all of these kinetic repetitive instructions. Move, 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 do it again. And in the early stages of the illness... You still have enough brain to make sense of it all. There's still a lot of cortex that is still available to act upon this desire to repeat. And so you get art that is obsessive and repetitive, but also beautiful and abstract, like Anne's painting Unraveling Bolero. But then Bruce says, as the disease progresses and more of that sort of cortexy, humany part fades away, the repetition becomes much simpler. In the latter stages of a disease, he says, you'll often see patients um, pouring water into a cup a hundred times in a day, squishing ants over and over again. The complexity of the behaviors are diminishing as, as we're losing these uh, parts of the brain that make us so human. This is sort of what you see in Anne's work. Her paintings start off simple, explode into abstraction, and then get simple again. But what's unusual compared to the other patients is that she kept painting almost all the way to the end. Until literally it was not possible for her to, to hold and direct a, uh, a brush or a pen. That's her husband Robert again. And became progressively paralyzed on the right side of her body. She lost the ability to paint 2005 uh -huh. early. And that, that, that was sad. Towards the end, he says he would go into her studio. And I would see her there 
in front of a blank canvas. And she wouldn't be doing anything. She would just be looking at it. And I'd come back a couple of hours later, and she still wouldn't have done anything. Hmm. She had lost the ability to do the art. And that, to me, is one of the, I dare say, beautiful parts of Anne's story, that the drive to create is as primal as anything else in the body, that even after she couldn't eat, after she could barely swallow, she still sat there in her studio trying to paint. She had gone downhill so far by that time that uh, that uh, she was hardly recognizable as, as herself. At some point in the disease, and you can see that in this early tape, painting was really all she had. I, I don't have the, the memories of this. It was basically all she was. Can you tell me what your job is, or are you are you still working? Uh, I do art. Great. Mm. She died in 2007? Yes, in January of 2007. Almost exactly 60 years after Maurice Ravel. Thanks to Robert Adams, Bruce Miller at the University of California, San Francisco, and Arby Ornstein at Queens College. Well, that's a song that's not that's 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 a piece that is not going to stay the same. Mm-mm. It's funny. I used to think of bolero as like a happy, jaunty tune, and now I'm like, oh, it's kind of haunted. It's an interesting sort of. Uh paradox that this this thing ends on. She sits in front of her canvas ferociously stalled. Mm. Uh, maybe both of them. It's the ferocious part. Mm. That, that, that creativity comes from a kind of restlessness and the restlessness may be one of the things that leaves last. Yeah. Alright, speaking of leaving, uh, we should go. Yep. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Mitch Leto from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Radio Lab was created by Jad Abumrad and is produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keefe is our Director of Sound Design. Maria Matasar Padilla is our Managing Director. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Maggie Bartolomeo, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Gable, Bethel Hobti, Tracy Hunt, Matt Kielty, Robert Krolwich, Annie McEwen, Latif Nasser, Melissa O'Donnell, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Amanda Aranchik, Shima Oleyi, Jake Arlo, and Reed Kanan. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris. Hi, I'm Robert Krillwich. Radio Lab is supported by Audible. Check out This Is Your Brain on Music, both a cutting-edge study and a tribute to the beauty of music. Go to audible.com slash radiolab or text radiolab to 500-500 for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook.
Hi, I'm Robert Krulwich. Radio Lab is supported by Casper. Check out the Casper or the Wave mattress with a support system that mirrors your body shape. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash radiolab and using code radiolab at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast.